This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 14 of Psych for Life with Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Ferguson. In today's episode, I will be discussing work burnout, understanding the burnout beast. As a global expert in work engagement and having also investigated the related construct of burnout, which were the bases of my PhD, I'm frequently called on to provide comment and insight as these topics have become more relevant since 2020. As both an organisational psychologist and general psychologist, I have separate qualifications and registrations in each area. Organisational psychology covers everything pertaining to the world of work. Today's episode will focus on work burnout, as I will be discussing work engagement in another episode to come. I have been passionate about work engagement and burnout for decades. I've conducted countless seminars, training workshops and keynote addresses on burnout, engagement, stress and performance management for workers across a variety of industries and in large multinational corporations such as Johnson & Johnson Medical, Ernst & Young, and IBM. Work burnout is a serious problem that researchers say is on the rise due to increasing pressures in our personal and professional lives and urgently needs more attention. Since the events of 2020, the world is now in an era of uncertainty. We face constant change and global crises such as climate change, natural disasters, pandemics, terrorism, political and racial unrest, as well as increasing economic instability and therefore job insecurity. These factors all add an overlay of strain to our lives, all while we try to get on with our everyday and work life. Not only are we constantly on edge trying to stay well and keep up personal resources, our work patterns and practices are forced to keep changing as we adapt to these crises. We all need more resources as we try to manage our stress and stay engaged with our work in this era, when things are bound to be tough for quite a while. Even before the pandemic, the world of work had reached a point where it was commonplace to see organisations using poor, unsafe or even abusive practices. By 2019, Amazon had joined a long list of global businesses accused of such working conditions. Staff complained of high work demands, unrealistic time pressures, unstable work arrangements, abusive supervision and micro-monitoring. The pace of change in organisations began rapidly accelerating as a result of the information revolution beginning in the early 1990s. Since this revolution, we've had a much more globalised economy. Many workers now have a 24-hour clock where their organisations never switch off and many workers are required to be available at any hour of the day or night. Not only is our work always accessible... So are we personally via our phones, social media and other communication platforms. Boundaries that once helped us to avoid burnout have disappeared and it seems we're not going back to a time of traditional boundaries or to a slower-paced society. Research shows technology will only continue to increase the reach that our work and the world has into our personal lives. Organisational psychologists were already expressing increasing concern about the effects of these work trends on health and well-being of workers, as well as the rise in burnout that was occurring well before the pandemic. 
All these pressures add to our risk of work burnout. Not only are these factors predicted to continue and to escalate in this era of uncertainty, we now live with a constant unease caused by the unknown and unpredictability of this time. Dr Michael Leiter, a professor of organisational psychology at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, and world-renowned expert, says burnout is becoming more prevalent and it has a lot to do with the intensity of our work environments as people need to perform at such a high level in order to succeed. Burnout is a major threat to our well-being. It can lead to mental health and physical problems, including diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and at its worst, suicide. According to the United States 2019 Bureau of Labor Statistics report on occupational fatalities, workplace suicides were up by 11% since 2018. In 2019, the number of workplace suicides spiked to 304, which was the highest since the organization began tracking this metric. The fact that more Americans are taking their lives at work suggests that some mental health conditions, which were once thought of as personal rather than professional issues, are in fact linked to workplace. In May 2019, the World Health Organization listed burnout as an occupational phenomenon and added it to the International Classification of Diseases. However, it's not classified as a mental condition in itself. It's described as a factor influencing the health status of individuals. Burnout is defined in the International Classification of Diseases as follows. A syndrome conceptualised as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. Burnout is characterised by three dimensions. Feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. Increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job and reduced professional efficacy. In the academic world, the construct of burnout was first proposed by Professor Christina Maslach in 1976 to describe and assess specific occupational stress reactions among healthcare and human service workers. Now, burnout is a term used to describe exhaustion in all workplaces. Research has long shown burnout results when there are high job demands and not enough resources, resulting in strain on workers, which eventually leads to burnout. This is known as the job demands resources theory. These days, burnout is now well recognised and acknowledged as a cause of workplace injuries and often appears in workplace insurance claims. Workplaces are now being held more accountable for these problems suffered by their employees. I've been involved in a great many of these injuries, as a psychologist helping the patient to heal and liaising between the patient, insurer and often a psychiatrist as part of the work injury claim process. As an expert in workplace issues and with my knowledge and experience as an organisational psychologist, I'll assess the patient, investigate the cause of burnout and the resulting injury, provide treatment, a prognosis and create a recovery plan. Within my practice, I've personally seen that burnout seems to be on the increase. And statistics show that over 75% of Australian and New Zealand workers experience burnout due mainly to COVID-19 and the shift to remote work, taking a toll on mental health. Only 15% of these respondents felt completely heard by their organisation and felt that they had adequate resources for their increased work demands. 
People stated that the increased volume of meetings, phone calls and workload were the greatest detriment to productivity. The trend of increased claims for mental health injuries is expected to continue, as the pandemic has highlighted the stresses placed on workers and the need for understanding of burnout and mental health. Employers and managers can best support their team members by having a simple conversation and asking how are they coping with their workload and whether they need more resources. It's then about keeping up those discussions, making time for individual catch-ups, understanding each team member's priorities and needs and just generally checking in. But what exactly is burnout? We know burnout comes from excessive stress, but we still need a certain level of stress to perform even the simplest of things like getting ourselves off to work on time. And this level of stress is a good thing. But as our stress levels increase, this eventually leads to strain and overwhelm, which if it continues can lead to burnout. For many people, especially medical and human service workers, a loss of meaning occurs when we're burning out. In simple terms, at work we expend energy, which we must then restore. This is called recovery, and it happens away from work. When recovery doesn't happen, we burn out. Leading researchers Marslash and Leiter identified two important dimensions of work-organisational relationships. One is a worker's energy level. Our energy is a very precious resource. We need to be able to sustain and recover our energy to work within time frames that allow us to do this. The second dimension is our values or our primary motivations. For example, wanting to make a difference or to connect with people, to gain skills, to pursue ideas, to feel we have agency and an impact on the world. These are things we bring to and aspire to gain in the work environment. When the workplace enables us to achieve these aspirations, we feel engaged. When it doesn't, we become disengaged, exhausted and eventually cynical and depersonalised. For example, a boss unwilling to consider new ideas or research findings and ways of doing things or even our opinions can cause these problems. So too, bullying and other uncivil behaviours cause burnout. According to Maslash and Leiter, many approaches to the problem of burnout centre on the worker having the problem and the organisation being reasonable and well run. However, we've all heard of instances of bad management or bad organisational practices. And as Maslash and Leiter say, you don't really have to be emotionally disturbed in order to dislike bad management. Our workplace has an enormous influence on us. This is where we spend most of our working hours and develop important aspects of our identity as people. Not only are we developing due to the nature of our work, but through our interactions with the organisation, we're ideally gaining agency life skills, and making a difference in the world and improving our own lives. When this potential is hindered or thwarted, it's typically emotionally distressing or exhausting, and this is when burnout can begin. Professor Leiter is even more specific and says burnout is a breakdown of the relationship between a person and their workplace. The relationship involves obligation, demands, expectations and hopes. This breakdown typically happens over a long time rather than quickly. So there's actually much opportunity for intervention if people and workplaces are aware of burnout problems and are willing to intervene. Arnold Backer was one of the researchers who developed the Job Demands Resources Theory 
and along with his research partner De Vries in 2020, they explained how acute job strain unchecked turns into enduring and severe job burnout. This is the result of consistently high job demands and low job resources provided by the organisation, combined with failure of the worker to self-regulate. They elaborate when workers repeatedly experience high job demands and hence higher levels of strain, they have an increased need to recover after work. However, unfortunately, people so stressed are usually less able to detach, relax and recover. Researchers say recovery specifically means restoring the resources that have been used up during work. Workers unwind and recover when their resources return to baseline. There are many different activities people engage in during out-of-work hours to recover, including exercise, hobbies, meditation and social activities, such as going to the movies or having dinner with friends. These daily recovery experiences are positively related to next-day work engagement and job performance. So what does burnout actually look like? The Australian Psychological Society breaks down burnout into two key dimensions. The burn component refers to irritability, frustration, anger, cynicism and perhaps even bitterness. And the out component refers to feeling drained and exhausted. Our passion and enthusiasm becomes depleted. We feel detached and want to distance ourselves not just from others but emotionally and cognitively from our work. People who once loved their job can end up hating it due to burnout. Backer and Debris explained that burnout can be best understood as a continuum ranging from intense emotional exhaustion after a day of hard work, which we recover from quite quickly, to severe and ongoing exhaustion that produces other problems such as impaired mood and cognition. This severe exhaustion requires a long recovery time. The more severe the exhaustion, the more risk there is of serious health consequences. Even cases of mild long-term burnout have been linked to anxiety, depression and physical health problems. So it's clearly extremely important that we all understand, reduce and ideally prevent job burnout as individuals and organisations. So how do we know if we're experiencing burnout or we're just exhausted? Physical exhaustion can lead to emotional exhaustion, which is the predictor of burnout. According to Leiter and Maslach, if we are feeling emotionally exhausted and unable to recover, this indicates we have an unmanageable workload. When this happens, recovery is critical or we are at risk of developing the other dimensions of burnout, that is cynicism and inefficacy. All organisms have thresholds, boundaries or conditions that allow them to survive and flourish. We often have to cross a threshold in order to find out where it is. Often, when young to middle-aged people are exposed to burnout for the first time, they can be tempted to dismiss that they've reached a threshold of coping. They try to push on, which only makes their burnout worse, more entrenched, harder to resolve and more likely to result in mental health problems. In modern society, we tend to idealise the busy, the highly successful and highly ambitious, even though these things usually come at a cost. However, recently people are returning to the simple things that make them happy and are wanting to work smarter, not harder. Even the elite have struggled with burnout. Hillary Clinton admitted in her book, What Happened?, that she experienced burnout during her campaign for the presidential race. Hillary called her race against Donald Trump a marathon run at the pace of a sprint. 
and she said you have to be careful not to burn out before hitting the finish line. Clinton admitted her own burnout was observable and that her former competitor and political ally, Barack Obama, drilled this point home when she was getting ready to run. Obama reminded Clinton of when they campaigned against each other in 2008. They often stayed in the same hotels and Obama's team would have already finished for the day and be getting ready to go to bed, just as Hillary and her team were only then arriving at the hotel, completely exhausted. Hillary's team would be already back out on the streets campaigning, just as Obama's team woke the next morning. During 2016, Obama reminded her of this time and offered her this advice. You've got to pace yourself this time. Work smart, not just hard. He would apparently repeat the same advice whenever they saw each other. Clinton says she tried to follow his advice, especially as he'd won twice. So from the outset, she put some routines in place to keep herself and her touring team as well and productive as possible. This is always wise to do at the beginning of any goal-setting process. Otherwise, once we're off and running, it's almost inevitable we will begin to burn out. Clinton says she urged everyone on the campaign to try their best to savour every moment and to find joy and meaning in the daily grind of campaigning. In 2004, I began my PhD on work engagement. Engagement is about loving and liking our work. Through the research and my own professional work, I discovered how important and interrelated burnout is to work engagement. Through my PhD, I investigated how people engage in their work and explored the distinction between people who work to live and those who live to work. Early in my research, I discovered that contrary to what leading researchers said about engagement being a universal, one-size-fits-all construct, we actually engage in our work significantly differently, depending on whether we consider our job to be our calling or not. This was a global first discovery in the research on engagement. People who consider their job a calling tend to be medical doctors, teachers, social workers, psychologists and other human service workers. And they often feel like they live for their work, that it's their life's purpose. Whereas in general, business people tend to work to live and as such are motivated differently. Research shows that conceptually engagement and burnout are moderately opposite to each other. The structure and measurement of each construct differs that is, Maslach's burnout inventory includes exhaustion, cynicism and inefficacy. And as a result, engagement has been modelled on their opposites, vigour, dedication and absorption, or being absorbed in one's work. We now know workers are most engaged when job demands are high and job resources are also high. Whereas burnout occurs when job demands are high but job resources are low. People who are highly engaged proactively try to get the best from their job demands and resources by job crafting, that is, shaping the way they do their job to make it more engaging and meaningful. However, workers experiencing job strain and who are on the path to burnout are less able to adapt and therefore will be less likely to be strategic in managing their workload. So what are the warning signs and risk factors of burnout? When we start to notice a negative change in the habits that help us to recharge, such as sleep, relaxation, exercising and play, this is a warning sign that we aren't replenishing or restoring our energy levels sufficiently. Many people who are experiencing these warning signs of burnout stop doing self-nurturing activities and have trouble separating their work life from their personal life. 
Workers who have been forced to work remotely are especially prone to this blurring of work and life boundaries. These remote workers can be even more likely to develop burnout. It's important to remember that feelings don't lie and that they are our best warning sign. We need to listen to our feelings and bodies, register any lack of balance and consider carefully what we're doing in our work and personal lives. According to Professor Leiter, the scientific warning signs of burnout are Firstly, exhaustion. Occasional emotional exhaustion is more likely to be the result of a temporary overload in some areas of our lives. However, if this occurs more than once a week, it probably indicates a lack of balance and needs addressing. This can be due to job demands, intensity or overtime, or maybe the result of rest and recovery not being effective enough. If you're getting regular sleep, exercise, play and time away from work, but are still unable to recover, this is a warning sign. If you find you can't get reasonable amounts of these resources, this is another major warning sign. The second warning sign, according to Leiter, is cynicism. When your focus is mostly on the negative aspects of the workplace, such as the managers are lazy or incompetent or don't care, cynicism shows that we've lost what we loved and liked about our job. This is a particularly depleting mindset to find ourselves in and needs to be resolved quickly. The third warning sign is a lack of sense of advocacy. A sense of advocacy is a sense that you're doing an important job and that you're good at it and feeling like the longer you do your job, the better you are at it. A lack of a sense of advocacy finds us feeling the longer we do our job, the more stuck we are. This demonstrates the risk of burnout is increasing. Leiter says burnout doesn't have to include all three of these warning signs, but they do usually occur together eventually. Burnout typically happens slowly over a long period of time. There can be a range of emotional, cognitive, behavioural and physiological signs. Often there's a growing sense that outer concerns are taking over our life and that we're neglecting personal relationships and self-care until yet another hurdle is overcome or a deadline is met. Emotional signs that we might be burning out include undue irritation or temper over trivial matters. Feelings of guilt or dissatisfaction when we're resting, playing or doing other pleasurable things. General feelings of hopelessness. Cognitive signs we may be burning out include difficulty making decisions, difficulty concentrating or staying focused, becoming negative in our ways of thinking, losing our sense of energy and purpose. Behavioural signs include a loss of balance between work and personal life, such as self-care, relationships, play and hobbies. We may have difficulty getting out of bed in the morning or becoming accident-prone. Physiological signs can include a general sense of depletion and tiredness, muscle tension, headaches and backache. Backer and DeVry redefined the job demands resources model of burnout. While they originally thought personal resources were important, they now specifically show how our self-regulation or self-management is also extremely important. Time is also a major factor, as I mentioned, as people typically take a while to burn out, so there is ideally opportunity to avoid burnout. They highlight how burnout is the responsibility of both employers and employees, similar to how Leiter calls it a relationship problem. Their model shows how employees experience increased job strain and then start to suffer burnout over days, 
weeks or months. This strain causes maladaptive self-regulation and coping mechanisms. People become inflexible. They undermine themselves and stop adapting and managing themselves. People give up normal recovery processes. They stop job crafting or redesigning the way they do their jobs to efficiently use resources and to keep their jobs meaningful. They withdraw emotionally and cognitively from their jobs. After people go through this strain and lack of resources pattern several times, eventually the accumulating strain becomes overwhelming and results in burnout. From the employee's perspective, personal resources that help people to manage strain and avoid burnout include adaptive self-regulation. Self-regulation finds us keeping our daily recovery a priority and continuing to proactively job craft or to adjust our tasks with regard to the demands of our jobs and the resources available. People with a proactive personality are those who recognise and regulate their fatigue in an effective way. So that's the employee's side of burnout. From the employer's side, there is a responsibility to avoid staff burnout by providing job resources such as equipment, support staff and networks. When a job becomes more stressful, stable resources become more important. These resources help people manage workloads, recover from excessive overtime, shore up boundaries between work and personal life, and encourage staff to take leave versus accruing it. So together, employers and employees contribute to preventing burnout. The other risk factors which contribute to burnout include, as Professor Leiter says, uncivil behaviour. This includes bullying, intimidation and abuse. This applies to both the victims of the abuse as well as those in positions of support. For instance, HR workers, colleagues, managers and human service workers. The quality of relationships among people at work is important. Research shows that in civil workplaces, people are more engaged, they work better and have less stress-related absenteeism. As Leiter says, one of the greatest joys of work is being part of a team that's productive, mutually supportive and really likes you. But at the other end of the spectrum, dealing with difficult people can be one of the biggest stressors at work. New opportunities, including job expansions and promotions, can also cause burnout, as well as pre-existing mental health factors such as anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, depression, stress, PTSD and addiction. Just as burnout can lead to mental health problems, the opposite can also occur. I've seen countless times where people are starting to burn out, they recover momentarily and then fall back into burnout, saying of their jobs, is it worth it? They keep losing their sense of fun, which is part of being resilient and is our competitive edge. Causes can include lacking confidence, assertiveness issues, perfectionism and workaholism. When this happens, it's important to seek professional help to explore what's underneath the anxiety, stress or depression that's causing the recurring burnout. Unresolved issues and traumas from authority figures in our past, such as from parents or old bosses, can be keeping our mental health low and our risk of burnout high. Once resolved, people are typically suddenly more resilient, happy, well and enjoying their job again. Burnout can also be caused by personal factors such as family, relationships, physical health, deaths and financial strain. Burnout can also be caused by the challenges of emotional boundary management. 
People working in medical contexts, such as doctors and paramedics, other human and environmental services, such as firefighters, have typically more emotionally taxing work than other workers. In addition, they usually feel their work is a calling and so are more emotionally engaged than others. So there is more risk of emotional exhaustion and burnout for these workers. But I've also seen many cases in the business context where emotional boundary management has caused burnout. This can occur when a leader really cares about their staff members and is unable to protect them from a dysfunctional or toxic organisational culture. Instead of getting too emotionally involved or taking our work issues too personally, we need to learn to detach our emotions or risk emotional exhaustion and potential burnout. Another key factor is work-life balance. Warning signs that we're losing this are when we stop doing things that are good for us or we love to do, like baking bread on weekends, a usual hangout with our friend, a date night, and of course, when we stop loving or liking our work. Famous developmental psychologist Eric Erickson developed a theory in the 1950s that we all have to navigate a tension between work and the rest of our lives. If this isn't solved, we suffer stress, conflict, and as he called it, an identity crisis. He argued that those with the richest and fullest of lives attempt to achieve an inner balance between three realms, work, love, and play. From this arose our common notion of work-life balance. Since the 1990s, in helping individuals and teams, I've argued this balance is unique to each individual and is a constantly shifting equation. A survey in 2018 of more than 11,000 respondents in 19 countries showed Australians were the third worst in the world for taking annual leave, with Japan and Italy the worst. A 2019 report in Australia calculated that every full-time worker had accrued just over 16 days of annual leave. Australians work an average of six weeks unpaid overtime a year. According to the OECD Better Life Index, Australia is in the bottom quarter of countries for work-life balance. COVID-19 brought new risks as work structures changed dramatically. While there are now more options and flexibility in the way we work, there's the challenges of blurred boundaries, of trying to make a dedicated place to work at home, managing children and a lack of internet in some places. There's a loss of social interaction and friendship the office provides. Work relationships can help mental health. In 2020, a global study of 2,000 employees in seven countries, including Australia, showed 75% felt more socially isolated since working remotely, and over 40% said their mental health had suffered. Naturally, lockdown restrictions and job loss also played their parts. Employees cited greater levels of emotional exhaustion. 67% were more stressed and 57% more anxious. From the organisational aspect, there's a major challenge to maintain cohesion, to keep providing resources and help staff manage and avoid burnout. For example, people are found to work three to four hours longer each day at home, according to figures from the US. Until March 2020, only about 5% of Australians worked from home every day. But by mid-2020, with the pandemic, two-thirds of working Australians worked from home. A lack of sleep is another risk factor, as sleep is one of the main recovery mechanisms. Most of us have experienced at some time waking feeling more tired than before going to sleep, unrefreshed, tense, with tight muscles and even waking with anxiety. 
According to the Depression Anxiety Stress Survey, if these symptoms last a week, this is a sign of mental health problems. It's a sign we're not recovering properly from each day struggling and heading into burnout. I encourage you to take a moment to think about whether you think you are experiencing any of these signs of burnout, such as more than one episode of emotional exhaustion this week or not being able to recover from work each day. And if so, what causes you to burn out? Now, what do we learn from burnout? So researchers show employers and employees need to work together to reduce burnout. Employees need to manage their energy levels, but at the same time organisations need to do the things that are meaningful to improve the way employees can work optimally and maintain their energy levels. As soon as we're not loving or liking our work, or the sense of meaning or joy goes, we need to re-evaluate and reprioritize our work and personal activities and lives and focus on the balance of our lives. Remember, most of our recovery happens away from work. So what about the role of resilience in burnout? We've learnt that our personal resources are important, the things we need to bring to our roles. Let's look at this further. Personal resources are mental, physical and emotional traits, for instance strength, confidence and flexibility. We build personal resources through our upbringing from childhood onwards. As adults, we can continue to build these resources through self-development. For example, think of how much more confident you feel after a major achievement, such as running a marathon or completing a certificate or university degree. Life experiences and adventures build resilience at any age. Resilience is the main personal resource we need to guard us against mental health issues such as burnout. Resilience is also known as anti-fragility. It's a combination of self-regulation and social competence. Remember that self-regulation is now an important factor in avoiding burnout. We typically develop resilience as a normal or optimal result of undergoing stressful or adverse experiences. For instance, that marathon or those exams. Resilience is seen in how we adapt to adversity, like losing out on a job we really wanted or how we bounce back from difficult times. But as world expert Professor Leiter makes clear, resilience isn't enough to overcome burnout. Resilience doesn't change the demands of our jobs or the resources provided by our organisation. Organisations have to be part of managing burnout. Employees are often advised to toughen up by their superiors when battling burnout. And I've heard this numerous times from my clients. But Professor Leiter's research shows that the causes of burnout are usually found in the organisation. As he says, when employees are burning out, employers need to reflect on the quality of their workplace and not just tell people to toughen up. He says, when we're encouraging resilience in workers to avoid burnout... We also need to encourage organisational change because burnout is caused more by the work environment rather than the failings of employees. So resilience isn't about being tough, it's about being able to act according to our needs, to manage ourselves and to seek help from our organisation. So let's unpack how to manage ourselves and then how to seek help from our organisation. Firstly, I'll be discussing self-regulation and then social competence. How we manage ourselves is self-regulation. How we seek help from our organisation is social competence. Self-regulation or self-management, as we learned earlier, is the most important personal resource that we need to avoid burnout. 
The key to developing self-regulation is, as it is for most things, knowing ourselves. Knowing ourselves starts with strengthening our self-connection or self-relationship. Like any relationship, this comes from quality time hanging out with ourselves, listening to our feelings, learning what makes us happy, facing and dealing with our concerns. A daily self-connect process such as meditation, either active or passive meditation, journaling or cognitive behavioural therapy are the main proven processes of strengthening our self-connection. Once we have a good self-connection, we need to understand what work-life balance looks like for us as unique individuals and how to maintain and regain that balance when lost. Remember that burnout or emotional exhaustion is avoided when we recharge or recover from work each day. Recovery is dependent on where we get our energy from, on whether we are an introvert or an extrovert. Introverts gain energy from time on their own and time in nature. Extroverts gain energy from being with people. Introversion and extroversion is different from how sociable or antisocial we are. For instance, a person can be extremely introvert yet highly sociable. There's been recent research showing we all have a need for time in nature for our mental health. Blue nature, such as the ocean, restores us better than green, but green is still highly restorative. The best immersion in nature is when we engage all our senses, not just walking on the beach or in the park with our headphones on, ignoring our surroundings. Good self-regulators have daily habits of self-connection, such as meditation. It's impossible to maintain good self-regulation without a daily self-connection process. Good self-regulators set up and revise their self-management processes regularly. They keep coming back to these good habits when life pushes them off track. Self-regulation makes it easier for us to keep developing more sophisticated ways of managing our workloads. As part of self-regulation, we need to manage boundaries, to stay conscious of what works and where our boundaries are for us personally. For example, leaving work on time, to be at the gym or to be with our children. Now, our social competence governs how well we seek support from our organisation. Social competence is made up of the social, emotional, cognitive and behavioural skills we need to be able to adapt successfully in society. It includes our ability to see situations from another person's perspective. It's a measure of how well we learn from past experiences and apply the new knowledge, skills or attitudes in new social situations. For instance, we learn how to deal with pressures exerted on us from a boss and through multiple experiences of this pressure, we learn how to respond assertively, where we aim for a win-win or adult-to-adult outcome. Remember, resilience isn't about being tough. It's about being able to act according to our needs. So if we're feeling like we can't recover from daily work exhaustion, that we've tried everything, we need to be flexible, self-aware and seek help from friends or family and we need to reach out to our organisation as soon as possible. Remember, this may be a slippery slope we're already on. Some of the things we can do with our boss or supervisor are reassess workloads, timeframes and priorities. We can re-scope project plans, see if anything can be delegated or shared with others, manage expectations of others, including our boss, customers and team members. For example, a customer might expect an outcome that's unrealistic given additional requests they've made and so new timeframes need to be set. We need to learn to gain resources from our organisations by building assertiveness and confidence, 
If your organisation lacks resources, consider suggesting some or seek resources in your team or other parts of the organisation. You can also find support outside the organisation or in your industry or groups across industries. For example, mentoring groups, local support or interest groups. Otherwise, seek professional help from an organisational psychologist. Now, what can organisations do to avoid burnout? Organisations increasingly want to know how to look after their employees' well-being as part of a healthy workplace culture. Organisational resources, such as human resource practices and healthy leadership, can help employees to regulate their short-term fatigue and avoid enduring burnout. Programs and psychoeducation about the importance of civil behaviour, mentoring and peer support are also recommended. Building a culture where people feel proactive about asking for help can help prevent burnout in the workplace. If you're a boss, remember, most recovery happens away from work, during rest, play and sleep. It's in promoting good work-home demarcation and flexibility if needed, and reasonable work hours or catching up after excessive overtime, making sure staff take leave versus accumulate it, helping them to walk away from their desk and phone at lunchtime, ideally in nature. Bosses can also help employees feel safe, trusted, supported, satisfied and engaged. Organisations need to build a culture where employees can reach out if stress is building or if they're worried they will reach overwhelm due to managing workloads, time pressures and lack of resources. The Voice Project, an Australian consultancy that specialises in engagement and climate surveys, did a survey of 26,000 employees in over 100 diverse organisations during COVID-19 in 2020. Remarkably and completely unexpectedly, employee satisfaction increased on an average of 10% during this time. Why was this? It was found that many organisations responded quickly and willingly in caring for the mental health of their employees, despite struggling to keep their businesses going. They provided direct communication, shared important information and empowered and trusted their employees. In times of uncertainty, research shows these are the best things leaders can do to keep employees engaged. Now, what are the daily recovery factors we all need to avoid burnout? In summary, it's rest, play and sleep. Self-regulation, which we looked at earlier, is our general maintenance and how we deal with the general work stress, emotional exhaustion and overwhelm. That's general recovery. But as mentioned, sometimes we need to ramp up our recovery processes due to ramped up work strain. To do this, we must know ourselves to manage ourselves. As individuals, we need to get to know ourselves, how we recharge and recover our energy best. Remember, every one of us is unique in this way. We also need to investigate our baseline mental health. Any anxiety, depression, stress or any other condition that may be in family genetics as well. A GP can assess this on a simple level and a psychologist on a much more thorough level. If you discover you have a pre-existing mental health issue, managing burnout will be even more critical and you may need help from a health professional to do this. Think of this as having a shorter fuse than others, a lower threshold or being more susceptible to burnout. Be quick to consult a psychologist if you feel you are slipping in your mental health. It could be burnout. So how do we manage ourselves? As shown by Hillary Clinton's experience, we all must manage our risk of burnout no matter how ambitious we are or driven. In fact, top performers have to be experts at self-management. One of the main recovery mechanisms is sleep. 
With extra job strain, some people will need more sleep and will need to catch up on their sleep as soon as possible, most likely on weekends. For instance, workers on international time zones or who have meetings late at night can sleep in the next day to catch up. How much sleep do you need? People generally vary between 5 to 10 hours a night. Play is another main recovery mechanism. Some people schedule play into their calendars to feel more control about the boundaries between their work and personal lives, especially since the blurring caused by lockdowns. For others, this can make them feel trapped that all their time is accounted for. Rest is also an important recovery mechanism. Taking a break can make us more productive, even if it's just 10 minutes away from our work during the day. Relaxation is also a key factor to self-management. What we find relaxing varies as individuals. Some people find music and watching sport relaxing, while others get too agitated and worked up. We need to make sure we unwind at the end of each day with whatever makes us feel relaxed. Another important factor in recovery, paying attention to our social needs, for example, making time for people close to us, or for those who can help us recover, such as support people like a mentor, friends, partner or group of peers. Restorative practices such as meditation can help bring perspective and recharge our energies. My first experience of meditation was as a child watching my grandfather, who was a Federal Minister of Parliament in Australia. He went on to be the Ambassador of United States America for Australia and to be knighted. Not bad having been born and bred in Broken Hill, back then a very poor mining town in outback New South Wales. His grandfather a coal miner, his father a timber miller. When I witnessed him meditating, I was baffled. I knew he was a snorer, but he wasn't snoring. His eyes were closed, and when his eyes opened, he was alert and refreshed. And I knew he'd been doing something special, something magical. And this is something that I think about even to this day. It also helps us to know how we work best, whether we are a segmentor, integrator or cycler in our work habits. A segmentor is someone who prefers to compartmentalise their work separate from the rest of their lives. An integrator flits back and forth between work and personal tasks, for instance can take a work phone call while watching a child play sport. And cyclers are people who work both ways, sometimes completely segmenting their work and home lives separately and other times integrating both. Another thing we can do is to do away with unnecessary daily decisions. For example, many of the world's most successful people make blanket decisions about their wardrobe and this frees up mental space. I did this years ago and it's been a huge time, mind and stress saver. I might be boring in my wardrobe at work, but I feel much more present and able because of it. Think about how you might adopt this practice of minimising decisions in your life. For more control, we can make our workday morning routines the same every day. Again, I do this and it makes my work life more stress-free. Exercise is important for our self-management as it allows us to release stress and release adrenal cortisol that otherwise builds up in the body. Daydream time is important for our mental health. It's through daydreams that we have realisations or epiphanies. These breakthroughs come from our subconscious mind, which is busy always processing life, its problems and challenges. It's important for this reason to have a day or at least half a day unstructured, to potter, to do non-essential housework, things that have been put off, gardening. All these things can be restorative. 
Also, taking pleasure in the simple things such as the sky, grass, sun, rain, the breeze and flowers. But how do we recover if we've reached crisis point? Sometimes we need to ramp up our recovery processes due to ramped up work strain. Early intervention is vital when we find ourselves on a slippery slope towards burnout. Hopefully by now you can recognise when you're on the path to burnout and what your burnout pattern is. When we've reached this point in burnout, it can be helpful to have a mental health day where we devote the day to rest and recovery and utilising all the mental health recovery processes I've discussed. Other tools we can use to recover are getting a massage, which helps to release tension, taking a short break or driving to somewhere we haven't been before, or getting into nature. We can also recover by doing active things like dancing, boxing, playing musical instruments, playing sports and games like tennis. Or creative things such as doing artwork, venting by singing, writing and so forth. Remember what has helped you in the past to recover, go back to that first and if it doesn't work, try new things. We can reach out and connect to others instead of being alone, especially if we've tried being on our own first. Together we can discuss how to help each other and learn how we prefer to ask for and receive help. We can also reach out to our organisation for help, as mentioned before. Asking a friend or seeking professional help can help us if we're confused or struggling with what to change in our lives. We can also take stock of how we spend our time. If all our time is accounted for, something has to give. We can drop back from something not as important, like an extra social engagement or a hobby. Some even choose to drop back a day of work. It's important to rebalance before we have no choice. Sometimes just giving in to the overwhelm, stopping and sitting with ourselves and facing the problem can help us to make the right change. Stop as soon as you can and create a timeout zone or cancel an event and just stop. If you can't do this on your own, book a time with a friend, mentor or health professional as soon as possible to do this with. So in 2021, it's clear that burnout is more of a threat than ever before as we face unprecedented pressures in work and life. Our traditional physical boundaries separating work from home have lessened and ceased to exist at times due to the pandemic. We now live with a constant unease about global crises and disasters, and the technology and now digital revolutions are exposing us to potentially overwhelming flows of information and demands in our work and personal lives. These revolutions are forcing us to adapt and change at a rapidly accelerating pace. This is a new era of uncertainty, and avoiding burnout is a work-life skill we need now more than ever before. These trends are not going to reverse, Technology is only going to become more integrated into our lives. Work is becoming more integral to our lives as the cost of living increases. Burnout is the beast that needs to be tamed. People who can manage burnout will be the ones who will succeed in work and life over and above others who can't. Although organisations should be taking burnout seriously, in my experience, many organisations still see burnout as a worker's problem. And so we need to remain vigilant about the problem of burnout. Over the past decades, the onus has been put increasingly on workers to bargain work conditions, manage themselves and the relationship with their organisation. And this looks set to continue. So if you find yourself in the position where you stop loving and liking your job, can't recover from your work days no matter what you do, or your workplace relationship is souring, Remember that burnout is a relationship between the employee and the employer 
and that resilience and self-regulation is only your side of the relationship. Reach out to your employer or organisation for help. And if that fails, seek guidance from a professional like an organisational psychologist. You can also seek help from Lifeline on 13 11 14, available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes.